Locked in memory, the kitchen walls of your youth continue to break and twist around you in a whirlwind of remembrance. The echoing notes of the skeletal pianist's command bounce off those spinning walls as if she were in the air around you. A sickness rolls through your gut, and sweat coats your skin that looks so alien to you now. There's a loud, clear pop, and everything is back in place. The kitchen is the same, the walls upright, the swirling bits all ordered back into place. Your father sits behind his newspaper, your mother hums away at the stove. The postman is nowhere in sight. There never was a postman. I want pancakes, you hear your younger self saying, expecting your mother to swivel around on a point as you remember her always doing and raising her voice in lecture. You're shocked to hear the folding of a newspaper. It's your father who reacts. Pancakes are for little girls who wake up in time for school, he says with venom in his voice. Your little girl thinks she deserves pancakes. Your mom doesn't tear herself away from the stove. You smell eggs. What do we do when your little girl wants something she hasn't earned, he says. Your mom stops humming mid-omelet flip. Well, dear, please, she says, almost a whisper. Please don't hurt her. Hurt her? How could I hurt her? Your father stands, towering over you. How do you hurt a pile of bones, he spits. How does one go about punishing a bone pile? He removes his belt and brandishes it toward you. With a belt, he says. He whips the belt at you and you jump back in fear of pain, but the tip of the belt connects with your arms with a loud crack. You feel nothing, surprised. You look at your arms and recoil at the sight of bare bones. What do we do with a girl who doesn't even have the decency to get dressed before asking for pancakes, he says. For God's sakes, what if someone sees you, girl? He brandishes the belt again, and in the moment you still feel its leather sting and the loud crack. You scurry to your room and enter a memory of a different time. Your mother is sitting on your bed, her head in her hands. You can tell she's been crying, though no tears mark her face. Your mother always had a certain way of displaying her emotions, not like your father who threw them out like so many curses. It was in the way she carried herself. A subtle tell that you adapted over time and you feel a sadness creep over you that somehow over the years, you've forgotten everything about this. Your mother sees you standing in the doorway to your room. Oh dear, she says. I just don't know what we're going to do. Now that he's been... selected. It'll be alright, Mom. You say not quite understanding what's to come of the atrocities your father is about to commit as the newly appointed mayor of your town. Your mom smiles and catches you as you run to comfort her. I hope so. The moment collapses into another memory, far away from your room, your house. You find yourself in the center of town, your hands bound behind your back. You stand beside your father, your mother on the other side of him. He dons the red uniform of the mayor, complete with brass buttons and sash, and stands behind a podium. The audience is the entirety of the town. It's inauguration day. You feel sick in the present, as the memory of this day washes over you, but your father's booming microphone-enhanced voice cuts through the nausea. 
For too long we have lived in the midst of beasts, he says. For too long creatures have crawled through our houses, invaded our beds, the beds of our children, stolen the food right off our plates. The crowd jeers, and we didn't even know they were there, he spits, right beneath the so-called skin of those who claim to love us. The crowd jeers louder. I myself didn't know of these monsters until the love of my life, he nods to your mother, gave me a disgusting abomination of a daughter, a bony, skinless freak. The crowd's jeering reaches a fever pitch, and they brought actual pitchforks. It was then that the true vile nature of my wife was revealed to me. The affront to nature of our relationship laid bare in the crib that should have belonged to my dear, sweet Clara. You recoil at the sound of your name. But no dear, sweet Clara was born unto me, your father says. Only bones. Only cruelty. I say no more. The crowd begins cheering. No more will we have to live in fear of these unsightly bone golems. Not with my first act as mayor. He fetches a scroll from the jacket pocket of his red mayor coat and unfurls it in ceremony. Hereby, it is declared by the mayor, so dutifully chosen by the elders and eldresses who so lovingly govern our town, that all skeletons and skeletal creatures be prohibited from presenting themselves as such and henceforth their memory be stripped of all knowledge of their true identities. Your mother screams. The crowd cheers a booming, blood-curdling cheer, and in the middle of it all you notice your father's elusive and never-before-seen smile as you fall back into the present, into the green room of the Phantom Piano Lounge, into the presence of the pianist, who's humming softly to herself. Mom? Your mother shifts her weight. Moments before, her bones that looked as they had weighed several tons lifted to weightlessness. Clara, she says, and you know there'd be tears on her face if she were capable. You embrace your mother, your real mother, and not some conglomerate botched memory wipe for the first time in a decade. The two of you part after so many minutes. The weight in your mother's bone returns a bit, but nowhere near as heavy as before. She's serious. Tense. We need to catch up, of course, she says. But first, I think it's time we do something about your father.
Welcome back to the final episode of the Frightened Times. As always, I'm Haunted Henry. And I'm... John. And together we're coming at you with all the spooky force of the underworld. And I have, uh, I actually do have another Frightened Times update for everyone. Alright. So I, I know that, uh, we've, we've got some concerns. I know that the Frightened Times are, of course, coming to a close, this being the last episode of the Frightened Times. And I know there were some rumblings in the crowd, some concerns that people had, and I do want to let you know that... Uh, once all sources of light in the universe burn out, there will be nothing but blackness. Alright, thanks for that update. It sounds like it's gonna be quite the weekend. It's going to be, ooh, sounds like a good weekend. You ever have people do that to you? What, what do they do? I don't feel like that's a thing real people do, but typically in, like, fiction, people will always say, Oh, sounds like a pretty good weekend to me, like disparate or unpleasant things. I, 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 what I was doing just now, uh, when people, when people, when news broadcasters, when the weatherman, you know, is about finished wrapping up, like, oh, it's gonna be sunny, and they throw it back to one of the, the lead, the head anchor, or the co-anchor, they always go, oh, haha, something about the weekend, uh, even though it's Monday. Yeah. So that's, that's what I was doing. You know, they, that wouldn't work for any other segment. No. If someone was, like, talking about a murder, and then someone <laughs> said, Sounds like a busy weekend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Police are still searching the forest for the body of the missing child. Back to you, Tim. <laughs> Sounds like an interesting weekend we've got, huh? Anyway, here's weather. And then he <laughs> says, like, hey, it's going to be sunny. That really is a shame. <laughs> <laughs> They're just emotionally one step apart. <laughs> yeah. Just the, the prompter is set up one segment apart. Yeah. Man, I can't believe that people are told what to say. <laughs> I can. And yeah. every facet of our life we have society looming over us with a teleprompter that we can't quite see. But others can judge us based on whether or not we respond accordingly. We're all reading a script, even if it's not written down. And I also have an update from this here Frightened Times, John. Mm. I want to let the people, the good people, know that the burn water notice has been lifted. You no longer have to burn your water, but it's still good to just bring it to a slight simmer before you rub it all over your body. Yeah, really, it's been a tough path back from the burn water notice. Now, uh, you know, as we were discussing, the world did change a lot, and I've been milking a lot of dingoes for their thick, nutritious milk rather than drinking water because my sink is clogged with ashes of water I've burned. And all the plates, all the ashes of the plates that we used to wash are now just clogging up where water used to go. My my disposal isn't any good anymore. It's all clogged with ash. It's like, you know, they, they tell you, you need to sharpen the blades of your disposal every three to six months. Mm -hmm. And I just haven't done it, because who has the time? Who has the time because you have to turn it on, and then you have to stick your hand in there with a tiny whetstone, and then you have to rub each blade as it circulates around. It's, it, it's time-consuming. And that is the official way... That the, the central authority mm -hmm. recommends 
to sharpen garbage disposals. Yeah, it's the only way to do it, because how else are you going to sharpen them? Now, funnily enough, a little a little tip for you housewives out there. I know we got a lot of housewives listening to the podcast. Yes, and keep in mind that housewives is gender neutral. Yeah, ha- house people. Yeah. No, uh, no, no, it's still housewives, it's but still it refers to both. It refers to both. Or more than both. The Central Authority, this they just released this in the latest uh, Central... Th- Mopolitan. Yes. Uh, the garbage disposal, great place to store your wedding ring. Really? Really. Okay. And, uh, you know, the Central Authority also released another uh, notice about garbage disposals. They're a wet place to grate. A wet place to grate. If you need to grate anything and you need a wet place to do it, garbage disposal, fantastic. Uh, you People used to think one trick pony garbage disposal. Mm. But no, it can do more. Yeah, but you do have to be very careful because they will trick a pony into trying to eat out of them and they will murder that po- They will macerate the pony. Wow, macerate. That's a word I haven't heard in quite some time. Uh, not since, uh... When was the last time you heard the word macerate? Good friend, macerate. Oh, no. Shame about macerate. How'd he die? <laughs> What? I thought you meant you had a friend named Macerate. No, we were good friends. There was this one time I was on this lava planet and he was screaming at me and then he lost his legs. Oh. Good friend, Macerate. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. So many good friend times updates. Uh, I can't believe it's finally coming to a close. You know what that means. Uh, every year I don't know what that means. I don't think we've ever remembered the end of a frightened time. Every time the Frightened Times ends, I know that I wake up. Yeah, we, we, there's like a weird haze, a white smoke, I think a new pope is elected, uh-huh. and then we kind of come back to reality and it's November. Yeah, I mean, the last, God, how old am I? 37 or so Frightened Times. Uh, I'm 29, by the way. <laughs> Uh, for the fa- for the past 38 or so Frightened Times, every single time the Frightened Times is over, the second the doors close on the podcast, uh, and of course the Frightened Times, uh, I suddenly find myself in a dark field, and then I'm riding beside my father on a horse, uh, and he's, he's carrying a lantern with him, and I call out to him, but he, he keeps moving forward out into the dark, and... I know that he's out there waiting for me. And then the Frightened Times are over. Yeah. You know, it, it's like Frightened Times 31, the, the 31st day of the Frightened Times rolls around on the <laughs> yeah. calendar. And it's like just a bunch of crows and ravens start just cawing and cawing and cawing until I black out yeah. from all the noise. And then the next day it's Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's really crazy. Uh, but I mean, I'm thankful for it, you know, for all it gives us. Yeah, me too. The Frightened Times... You know, it takes as much as it gives. Yeah. And it gives a lot less than it takes. <laughs> yes, it takes a lot of things. And actually, I'm not sure what it gives, but I sure am thankful for it. It's weird. You know, I, we've never really talked about the end of the Frightened Times before. Now, do you mean the end of the Frightened Times in the, the end of the time? Any or? of the annual ends of Frightened Times. We've never discussed that. But have you noticed around the office... We always get a new intern around this time of year. Yeah, I don't know why that is. Me either. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just like, you know, churn, 
turnover ratio, capital uh, market capitalization. You know, I'm capital sure capital gains tax. Yeah, capital gains tax. I'm sure there's a reason for that. Mortuary. 401k. Mortgages. Yeah, yeah. Medicine. Medicare. Medicare. A lot of reasons. Yeah. A lot of reasons. I'm sure better things for those interns. They probably get full time positions somewhere. I hope. We never hear back from any of them. Yeah, but I mean, you know. But we're not the best bosses. Yeah. Why would you keep in touch with us? I have never spoken to one. Yeah, I know. It's all over email. Yeah, it's it's all over email and like no matter how much... I mean, I've met them in person. Yeah, because we hire them. Yeah, but every time they try to speak to me, I just act like I'm looking at vapor. Yeah, I, like the bartender from The Shining. Yeah, and then like uh, they're... They's just, Wait, like I'm the bartender from The Shining? Who? I'm the bartender from The Shining? What are you, what are you talking about? I just know that there's a bar... Oh, no, no, no. It's the uh, towel guy in The Shining that's racist. I was afraid you were saying I was a racist like the bartender in The Shining. What? Who's the towel guy? There's like a butler guy who says the N-word. Oh, in the bathroom. Yes. Yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah, I'm not same, him. Same rooms? Yeah. Different ghost man. Different ghost man. Yeah, never have I talked to one of our interns. Who? Exactly. Okay. Well, as you know, John, for the past couple of weeks, we've had a theme every episode. First one was fear. Yes, fear or... Urban legends. Uh Uh-huh. The second one was more... Yes. It was like city legends? I don't remember. Something like that. This whole week, ever since the water... (laughs) Has been a blur. Yeah. I should really hydrate at some point now that the water is simmerable. And we all remember the third one. Huh? We all remember what the third one's theme was. Yeah, let's say it at the same time. Okay, wait. One. No, wait, hold on. Two. Three. three, Four. Urban legends. Urban legends, you're right. We said it exactly the same time. I remember saying that. Yeah. So this week, we have a new theme. We forgot the fourth one. What? (laughs) There was a fourth one as well. Oh, that was last week. That was last week. We did Urban Legends of the Water. Yeah, Urban Legends of of Lockwa. I remember... Was that like the Scottish lock and then also the Spanish agua? Uh, no, it was la aqua in French. Oh, okay. The the aqua? I thought the sani was how he said water in French. Uh, no. Anyway. It's a Nestle Sweet Life or whatever. I hate that company. Yeah. You want to talk about evil companies? I'm talking about real monsters. Talk about real monsters. Yeah, man. That guy. Nestle. <laughs> Dr. Nestle. Not talking about the, the, the chocolate. I mean, they make chocolate. I know, but I like the crunch bars. Yeah, but you can't like the crunch bars and hate the company. No, I can. You've got to hate everything about them. No, it's like, you know, I like drinking Roundup, but I still hate Monsanto. That makes sense. Did you just hear a weird growl? I I heard a... (laughs) There's a barking dog outside. Yeah, there's a barking dog, or is there? (laughs) So this week, the theme, of course, is urban legends. Yeah, again. I mean, for the first time. What? For the first time, Urban Legends. But we mentioned an Urban Legend last week that I said we could discuss on the podcast this week. Mm-hmm. That being one of the original creepypastas. Yes, the one of the 
first internet scary stories before, even before the term creepypasta was even a thing. Yeah, predates the word. This wasn't actually a creepypasta. Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know, creepypasta is a story that you copy and paste onto a forum for the express purpose of scaring someone. Yes. Uh, And creepypasta has kind of broken out to be its own genre of kind of ab... Not abstract, but kind of existential horror fiction that exists primarily on the internet. Yeah, it's like supernaturally imbued existential horror fiction yes. that you read in bite-sized pieces and forum posts. Yeah, they're, they're kind of just, uh, I mean, I, I was going to say amateur short stories, but every short story is amateur, I guess. There's no such thing as like a, a professional short story writer in any meaningful designation. Um, Edgar Allan Poe was a professional short story writer. Yeah, but with he... With a meaningful designation as he, he Yeah, but he, he didn't make anything as good as Slendy Man. <laughs> Slendy? Well, he made Telltale Heart. He made, The uh, Fall of the House of Usher. Pollyanna? What's his short story with the woman's name? Pollyanna sounds right. Eleanor? Sure. Uh, she gets strangled at the end. The one with the hair. Yes. That's a different person. Is it? It's not Edgar Allan Poe. God damn it, is it? Sorry. Percy B. Shelley. Nope. Is it? Whoever did an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Maybe. Might be that guy. I don't think it was, but maybe. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is short stories are an art form and they do have masters. <laughs> okay. Thank well, you very much. Amateur short stories, then. Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, and that's what they are on the internet. And before... Any of this, before this, this subculture of creepypastas on forums and boards and IRCQs, I don't know what the chat rooms... Uh-huh. Sure. MSNs. There was Ted the Caver. Yes, Ted the Caver published in... Published, put on Angel Fire in uh, what I would like to call probably the birth of creativity on the internet... 2001. Yeah, 2001. 2001, I, as someone who lived through basically all of the internet, 2001 is really where shit started getting wild on the internet. I had just signed up for Neopets. Neopets was all over. And Something I, awful was doing terrible things. I had to lie about my age. Yes. I had to be 13 to access the forums. I remember uh, loving Neopets. I remember reading uh, Neopets comics that were viciously uh judgmental to the administration of neopets and that's all before we knew that neopets was like some weird scientology thing what i don't know if it's scientology i'll link you to the paper okay uh but yeah neopets was all over the place there was something awful 4chan uh, fucking... 4chan was around back then? I think 4... Well, maybe that was like 2002, 2003, I don't know. Man. But 2001 is really when the internet started to go nuts. I was like five years away from discovering 4chan. And when the internet exploded in 2001, there was uh, a fairly dedicated following around the 2002, 2003 time period of people who would reference to this story called Ted the Caver. And it, it, it became fame. People refer to it still to this day as, like, the original horror internet story. Yeah, Ted the Caver. Uh, and I'm sure people listening to this have heard of Ted the Caver if you're of requisite age or knowledge. And Ted the Caver was a short story published in parts 
uh, supposedly from the journals with editorializing from someone who had, from a seemingly professional spelunker, or at least experienced spelunker, trying to gain access to a small passage in a cave. Yes. Uh, called Mystery Cave. Mystery Cave. And uh, it has been over ten years since I read Ted the Caver. I read it just over the past two days. And uh, yeah, it. how does it feel having read it now? Not like a review, but given what we have in terms of like horror fiction. Because for me, the whole thing about the Ted the Caver is that it is a genre of fiction that was so completely not represented in the early 2000s. But today feels almost kind of rote. It has a lot of competition. So reading in the context of I, that I'm stumbling upon this out of order. Like I've read really great creepypastas before, like the Russian sleep experiments, uh, the stairs in the woods. Yeah. A lot of stuff about Skywalkers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> reading this and, and going back, it's like I can see the potential. Yeah. I can see the merits of this, but the story itself wasn't as gripping as I wanted it to be, but I'm coming like, it's kind of like eating Ben and Jerry's now. Yes. Whereas when they first started, their flavors probably weren't as good. Yes. You know, they've refined the process over so many years. Exactly. It's like, it's like shooting a gun now. Versus shooting a gun in the 1800s. Exactly. It's like it's I more see, streamlined. I see where this is going. The barrel has the little swivels to really make sure that 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 pellet, you know, goes where it needs to go. You can shoot something that's more than six feet away. Yeah. <laughs> Things have improved, but it's stayed in roughly the same form. And, and what I have to say is, it's not scary enough. Yes, I remember reading Ted the Caver for the first time on a huge CRT monitor in the dead of night because I never slept as an early teenager. <laughs> the only sounds are the whirring fan of the of the uh, the PC, but also the weird tingling sizzle of the CRT monitor. Yes, the, the little tiny chirps and beeps and uh, churning sounds from inside the computer because I didn't have the sound on because I didn't want to wake my parents because I wasn't supposed to be up at 3 o'clock in the morning. But I read all of Ted the Caver and Ted the Caver filled me with like a complete and existential fear for days. And sure, I was a child, but I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it is I mean it it's kind of the perfect exemplification of what this genre is because it picks one or two fears it introduces an unknown element it introduces a certain amount of believability from a first person narrative with some verisimilitude and it's just enough to like get your mind going the greatest thing that Ted the Caver did when he when he put this all together was include the pictures. Yes. Actual photographs of the cave. And probably the creepiest moment is the picture of himself in what what's the, the passage known as Floyd's Tomb. Yes. Which is like a very, very narrow passage. Mm -hmm. And just that picture alone is enough to kind of get my heartbeat going. Yes. And he even says a few times, like, not for the claustrophobic. Yeah. And it's like, well, that you would never find me there. The... Uh reading his account and the quality of the writing could definitely use some work 
Uh, but the reading his account of the cave just starts to like raise the hair on the back of your neck for any impulse that you have that you might be claustrophobic. It is uh, really well done in that regard because it does, like I said, what most creepypastas do in that it finds one fear and that's what it uses. Yeah. Usually it's one element mm-hmm. and it builds on that element in a way that becomes nuanced. Yeah, whereas a lot of... Uh, Particularly, like, Western horror tends to be written in such a way where it's just a bunch of fears, like a fear shotgun. Like, fear of dogs, fear of clowns, fear of clouds, fear of being alone. Like, it throws a bunch of stuff at you, whereas a finely tuned short story like this gets one thing right. Ted the Caver certainly does, uh, but it, it definitely could use some work. Yeah. Now, what did you think of uh, probably the biggest criticism that Ted the Caver has in the modern day is uh, being overly, like, detail-oriented and plotting, especially in the first half, where he just kind of describes uh, basic, like, diameters and textures of the cave for paragraphs at a time. This is interesting, because you kind of run into a weird Herman Melville slash Rockstar Games conundrum where you're overloading the reader... With verisimilitude. I can't say that word. Uh, verisimilitude. Thank you. So you, you, he establishes his ethos, if I'm going to break this apart like an English teacher. Mm-hmm. He establishes his credibility in the fact that he proves that he is a caver. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like the, the entry that's just entitled On Caves, or mm-hmm. On Caving... Uh, I almost wanted to skip it because it had nothing to do with the mystery, but it adds so many details that for non-cavers, you understand the rest of the entries that much better Mm -hmm. because now you know, like, okay, this isn't just some fuckwit. This isn't some jackass thinking, oh, I can fit in that cave. He's an expert. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how to handle himself. And that's supposed to make the supernatural elements scarier mm-hmm. while normalizing the fact that no, like, normal person would do what he's doing. Yes. Uh, one thing that I appreciate about the detail about the caves, and this is something that really is only I gain uh, insight from from hindsight, is that in 2001 to 2003, when most people were reading Ted the Caver, uh, Wikipedia maybe existed in like a nascent form that people generally didn't rely on in every case. Uh, in addition to that, just information on the internet was definitely there, but it was harder to find. So reading Ted the Caver and reading this really uh, kind of thorough breakdown of caving techniques... You, you start to feel as though this person was there because they have credibility. Whereas yeah. today, because of the ease of uh, in, the ease of finding information on the internet, credibility is impossible to prove. Oh, yeah. the, this was a, the wild west of the internet. There was there were no centralized authorities, if you will. Yeah. Of, of like there are no bastions of I can just go here to find anything. Mm-hmm. And Wikipedia was around, it says, but of course it was not the household name that it is today. Yeah, this was a time when like uh, Google or Lycos or Alta Vista or Ask G of searching didn't always just give you a Wikipedia article for something. I don't even know if Google was around. Yeah, I don't know that it was. This could have been pre-Google. It was definitely pre-YouTube. That was 2005. Yeah. Yahoo or uh, Alta Vista or... 
Netscape search. <laughs> Netscape search. There we go. Uh, yeah, you didn't always get a Wikipedia entry for something. So it was a lot. And I guess that's something that maybe warrants a larger conversation outside of the scope of this podcast is that credibility now exists such that you have to have video of something to establish credibility. And even now, uh, videos are being increasingly faked. I mean, all of human history is us finding new ways to establish credibility and authenticity and then someone finding a way to fake that. Yeah. But I, I think maybe even the age that you came across this story, you were a child, I guess I'll say. Yeah, you very were more, early teenager. You're the mindset of, like, I'm going to ex- open to accepting what you're experiencing. Yes. And that, that's what so- something I think creepypastas really embrace. These internet horror stories really ask you to just believe what's happening, what's, what's being said. The pictures add credibility. The expertise add credibility. And that just leads you to believe the crazy stuff, although it doesn't get that too crazy Mm -hmm. And Ted the Caver. Yeah. It's just crazy enough that you might believe it. It's just crazy enough to believe that there are, like, malevolent hallucinations. Yeah. Uh, But I know that, and this isn't in any way meant to be pejorative or a generalization, but typically I believe that creepypastas on the internet as we know them today are aimed at and consumed mostly by... Like children and teenagers. Yeah. So I believe that the success of these things does depend in some level on your readiness to believe a story. And children typically will have greater stories of that energy. Because all, all children get are stories. Yeah. They've been getting stories for the past five years. That's how they process information and go to sleep. I mean, all adults are is just a collection of painful mistakes and successful stories. Yeah. Like, all we know is the stove burned us and someone told us a story about how they get run over by a lawnmower, so we don't stand in front of lawnmowers. And we don't put our hands on stoves. Yeah. Uh, So I, I definitely think that that had something to do with it. But it's really... I had a very strange experience reading Ted the Caver because, of course, I was not frightened, for I am an adult and I'm afraid of nothing now. Uh, But reading through Ted the Caver, it was very much an experience where I felt nostalgic. I missed a part of the internet and a part of the shared culture that we have, which exists largely on the internet. At this point, most of the things that you and I have read, most of the experiences we've had, most of the lessons we've learned are at least tangentially related to the internet. Because it's been around for more than half of our lives. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been on the internet for like 20 years at this point. So I... I Felt like reading Ted the Caver was like going home in a weird way. That's interesting. That's like when I, you know, when I was kind of in grad school trying to find my way. I went back to Neopets for a little while. Yeah. Just for like the nostalgic, like a place of familiarity. I do the same thing with old video games and anime. <laughs> yeah. We We just have things that we can go back to that remind us... Honestly, reading Ted the Caver, a horrifying story about being trapped in a cave and going insane, uh, gave me a sense of familiarity, a sense of comfort, like a like a good book would. And that's basically what it is. It's just a, it's a it's a story. It's a good book, and it, it it harkens back to a time when you were more apt to believe what you were reading, and maybe a sense where you didn't have the world quite as figured out. Yeah. And there's something, I think we romanticize that a little bit. We, we, we romanticize the unknown. Yeah. And I mean, you know, 
2001 to 2003 was a terrible time. Yeah. Politically. And also for space shuttles. For space shuttles. Yeah. Uh, for us. For me, those weren't good years uh, as a child. But I mean, I, I think that we can't help but look on certain things fondly. And really, Ted the Caver made me feel old. Because I remembered viscerally for something that affected me so much. I remembered a time in which this was a new frightening exposed nerve on my brain that i'd just been exposed to and now it's just a cozy little story i can go back to is there something disappointing in that yeah almost but it, i i feel like it's not necessarily disappointing it's just that it's turned into something different that i didn't anticipate okay but i almost feel as though i can't get that feeling again like i don't know if something could affect me the way a story like that did at that time because now i'm going to read through something and i'm going to view it critically in every sense i'm going to view it with all the knowledge i have about the world so is the wonder of those things gone i can't help but wonder that's interesting because i'm still terrified of horror yeah and, and so horror movies certain ones maybe more the newer ones because I, I got through the shining pretty okay but horror movies have a way of sort of reducing me back to that childlike wondrous state of Holy shit, I can't handle looking at this. There's certainly... I, I mean, maybe that's the good takeaway. Is that it's not necessarily that we can't help but be critical and jaded to things. But we just need to experience new things and make a concerted effort to do so. Yeah. And being scared is the closest we can be to being a child. Because when you're a child, everything is scary because everything is new. Yeah, you're a little raw nerve all the time. Like, everything's horrifying. Everything will kill you. Yeah. Everything will judge you and kill you and pull your pants down and cut your head off. And when you grow up, you, you're, you still... <laughs> My voice cracked like hell. <laughs> you're still aware that everything will kill you. You just become jaded to that fact and you're like, well, come on, get on with it. <laughs> you're like, fucking take it from me. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to see... Come on. What are you going to do, stab me? Guy who was stabbed. <laughs> I uh, I will say the second thing from reading Ted the Caver, and then we can get to any takeaways you might have had, if you have any. Uh, so, reading Ted the Caver did make me remember something. What did you remember? Remember when I said that I went spelunking? Yes. I've got a story about that. I am excited to hear it, because... For the most part, reading Ted the Caver, all I could, all my little lizard brain could think is, never in a million years would you do this. I would highly recommend that anyone go spelunking. Hopefully with a group. I think REI lets you do that. I would highly recommend anyone do it because I probably will never forget the experience. But I did forget this one particular part until I read Ted the Caver. So the first cave we went to uh, when we went to Alabama to go caving was like the largest... Uh, cave in alabama with a very specific uh it's called like the underground city or something okay it is stalac stalagmites and stalactites and it is a massive field of them that is lit from below so when they turn the lights off at a certain level of the cave uh you can see like all of these stalagmites and they create they look like skyscrapers they're not that big but it looks like a model city almost Okay. And you can go further and further down this guided tour. And it's totally guided. It's paved. They've, like, excavated parts of the cave so it's totally safe. And you don't need special equipment. The only thing that you need is to make sure that 
when you go down there that you change your clothes after you leave. And you change your clothes after you leave because the bats down there have this thing called white nose fungus. If you oh. take those clothes anywhere else, you'll give those bats white nose fungus and it's fatal. That's to bats? To bats. Poor bats. So, uh, but you keep going down and there's a point that is the deepest part of this cave that's just this little, like, rotunda. And I think they called it the rotunda. And when you're there, what you can do, and your tour guide tells you to do this, is turn your headlamps off because they're going to turn off all of the lamps around you. And that is the only time in your life you're going to experience complete darkness. Because when they turn all the lights off, there is no residual light from any of the lights previously. And you are in complete darkness. And complete darkness is very weird. Because when when your eyes can't perceive anything, your eyes kind of start to go crazy for a second. Like, you start thinking you see lights, and then the darkness just, like, squashes those, and you realize that, like, no matter where you look, no matter what, you're never going to see anything. It's like being blind. That's insane. Complete darkness is crazy. Uh, So when we went to this other cave, oh, we're both reverting back to being young babies. Maybe that's what happens at the end of each frightened time. Maybe. That's why we can't remember. Uh, But when I went caving... There was a specific time, I believe, on the third day where everyone was going deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave. And my problem was I was wearing shoes that had no tread. Oh. Uh, And that was totally fine for caving for the most part. It was a bad idea. Uh, But we were trying to get to this underground pool because half the group did not want to go. And it was only one leader of the group that did want to go check out the underground cave. And I was like, sure, I'll go check out that underground cave. Even though you have to like squeeze through like a little two-foot passageway to get into another thing. No. But once you squeeze through that passageway, which some people did, some people didn't, you have to go down and down and down and down and down. And at one point, when you've gone down far enough, there is this big downward sloping stretch that is about a 45 degree angle that's covered in like silt oh wow and at the bottom of the silt is just a drop so if you fall down the 20 the 45 degree angle you'll fall and you'll drop and you'll you'll seriously hurt yourself you won't die okay but it's like an 18 foot drop at the bottom no uh so we kept going i just kept sliding and i kept sliding i just couldn't Like, I'm top-heavy, I have no tread, like, everyone else has better shoes, I just can't do it. Uh, So, they were like, and they saw I was having trouble, and I was like, hey, it's my shoes, there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, So they tried to help me, and then they're like, hey, uh, we can go back, because it's not safe for you to keep going. Uh, Or, if you want, because we've come this far, if you're okay with it, you can stay here, alone, And then everyone else is going to go further down to see where it goes. Right? Sure. And I said, sure. Uh, Because it was a cave. I wasn't afraid at all. Uh, So I just sat down at this 45 degree slope covered in silt, just waiting. And I just saw saw their headlamps getting farther and farther and farther away. Uh, And eventually their headlamps disappeared. And eventually the sounds of the group disappeared. Because they had gone super far. At this point, they were maybe 25 minutes traveling away. So I was just sitting there, and there was no sound whatsoever. I was just looking around. Uh, I could maybe hear my own heartbeat because it was so quiet, and I could hear like every little shift I made with my gear. And then at that point, I remembered uh, that in the previous cave, in the visitor cave, if you turn your headlamp off, 
you'll be surrounded by complete darkness. And I had my headlamp on, so I was like, this should be fun. And I turned my headlamp off. Uh, and I tried to, like, make a bet with myself how long I could sit there with my headlamp off until I heard noise. And I sat there for a couple minutes. And then I very seriously, and this is a serious thing, I started to hear what sounded like a distant, low rumble. And it sounded like it was coming from where it dropped off into the darkness at the end where you didn't want to fall off. And I thought it was like an underground river or something that just now, because I stopped moving, I was able to hear. But it just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And this like weird, deep rumbling that was barely perceptible just kept getting louder and louder and louder and louder until it felt like I barely could hear anything and then I turned my headlamp on it went away what yes no yes fuck that I have no idea I, I think I know what it was the darkness I think I had my headlamp off so when you're in total darkness for a long period of time you start to like have auditory and visual hallucinations yeah. sensory it's, deprivation yeah it's why sensory deprivation tanks work but also I think that People say they experience similar things in sensory deprivation tanks because the only thing you can listen to is your blood flowing in the blood vessels in your ears. You think you're just hearing your blood? I think I was just hearing my blood, but it, I don't know why it was getting louder and louder and louder, and I don't know why it got that loud, and I don't know why it stopped when I turned my headlamp on. Panic attack? Maybe. I don't know. I wasn't that freaked out. If I was freaked out, I would have turned it on, but I was like trying to figure out what it was. And I kept telling myself it was nothing, but eventually when it was too loud to bear, I turned the headlamp back on, it was gone. That's insane. And then about ten minutes later, I heard noise, saw headlamps, and they all came back. Oh, man, you know what was in Ted the Caver? Uh, what? <laughs> rumbling? <laughs> yeah, there was a rumbling. A rumbling. Yeah, that was the part that reminded me of that. Wow. Yeah, so caves are cool, I'd recommend them. I wouldn't, uh, I've eaten in a cave. Okay. There was a, no. A bat? I, what? No, I didn't eat a bat. Oh. In France, there are these just caves in the in the side of the mountains, the French mountains, and people pour restaurants in them. Oh, that makes sense. So, I, you know, you eat in a, in a cave. I thought nothing of it. Mm-hmm. Well lit. It's a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever been caving, and I don't think I ever will. Too frightening. I, I would say if you have, like, a... Caving is nuts to me. Too frightening. Caving is nuts to me because even if you have a super good guide, which we had, the guide will sometimes be like, hey, this is just a fall that's 30 feet deep. No. Sorry. You either jump over it or you stop here. Excuse me? Yeah, because I told the story before, the cave we went in this time, it was really easy. Yeah. Uh, And there was just like a 30 foot sheer drop down and it was just a gap that was like two feet wide. Put a plank over it. Uh, but you had to jump over it every time. Uh-uh. Every time you had to jump over it's it. It's a very afraid. It's... It's, it's a, a very afraid. It's a very afraid. You heard. Uh, yeah, no, spelunking was probably the scariest thing I've ever done, and I don't regret it. Well, I'm glad you don't regret it. You just won't catch me there. I'm just glad I didn't turn into a demon. That's good, too. I, I, I heard demons like to lurk in, in caves to catch spelunkers unaware... And they, they prick them mm-hmm. with their little demon demon fingers, and they're like, ha-ha, now you are the demon. Now you're the demon. It's just like in uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I've only seen three episodes. Uh, there's a thing in a cave, in a mine. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. 
Let's not talk about the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Not until I finish it. That's for another time, once we've both finished it. Yeah. So far, so why does the show insist on trying to get Sabrina naked every episode? I don't know. I'm really concerned about her health. I just want more Salem. I know! He never talks! In the three episodes I've seen! Uh, yeah... And he's not the mechanical cat from the sitcom. He's not. He had the perfect opportunity. He's not a mechanical angry cat with a death wish from the sitcom. They could have gotten that thing out of storage. I wanted it to, like, this is a very super serious reboot. But Salem is just the sassy, wise, cracking puppet machine from the sitcom. I would really like them to be like, we've been excommunicated by the Church of Night, the literal devil is is out to get us whatever and then the cat's like oh the bread's stuck in the toaster (laughs) yeah watching the chilling adventures of sabrina i can't help but look back on that sitcom and just go how did that ever get made yeah uh also sometimes i look at the chilling adventures of sabrina i think how did that ever get made well it was a graphic novel it was it or a comic I mean, it was originally a comic because it was in the Archie Wait, well, yeah, it was an Archie comic, which... Wait, why? How? These things perplex me. Hey, here's a crazy thing, Henry. What? You know Riverdale? Yeah. Same universe. As it was it confirmed to be the same t- TV-matic universe? Just hold on until episode seven. Does Archie show up? <laughs> Just hold on until episode seven. Jugheads? Uh, I will seal my lips. Lips are sealed. Just wait until episode 7. Magic is canonically real. It's just like when magic showed up in the MCU. Oh, Doctor. Yeah, Doctor. Famous, famous, incredible Marvel character, Doctor. Yeah. What, you think he has a last name? (laughs) He doesn't. He's a magician. Doctor Magician. (laughs) No, no, no. That's his profession. His yeah. name is Doctor, and uh, he is a magician. Yeah, that's his first name, is Doctor. His first name's Doctor. Yeah. He, and he is a magician. Yeah, he is Doctor, comma, magician. This is how I process these movies. Yeah. My head hurts thinking about Ted the Caver and picturing small spaces. Uh, you should, uh, cave. No. Or not. I can't... I read about once... You know, I read about... You know those Pueblo Indians? They built the, those nice little houses in the side of a cliff uh-huh uh some of those passages in those houses were really small mm-hmm. and they would have to crouch down and enter them and i immediately had the mental image of a tour group and me being in front of the tour group and the tour guides saying everyone you know go through this passageway and then i'm stuck behind all these tourists in the back of a small room and i, I just that image i can't deal with uh, my one, my one caving experience in a tight passage was like a two foot, it's basically the size of like a five gallon bucket. I think I've said this story before, yeah. but you had to just shoulder your way through it. It was really fun at the end because I shouldered my way through it. I barely fit. It was awful. I stood up and like my vision blacked out and I felt like this really sharp thud on my head. Oh, no. And then I, like, ducked down and, like... It made my vision black out for a second. I looked up and there was this big fucking spike-shaped rock oh. that I just 
bashed my helmet in two. And the guide came out and I showed him like the big crack in my helmet. He's like, huh, if you weren't wearing a helmet, you'd be dead. <laughs> Holy shit. Probably not true. Yeah. But that would have been a... A uh, hell of a... I was just so glad to be out of the thing. I stood up so fast. What a way to go. Just I, uh, kill myself on a knife rock. I can't. You, the, I know. Don't let me dissuade you from caving, fams. But I will not go caving. You will not catch me dead. And a squeeze little stupid tube. I ain't being no human toothpaste. Have you... Uh, what do you think of like scuba diving and skin diving and stuff? Uh, I will snorkel. Okay. Next to the surface. Did you know that you can go skin diving, which is you just, it's like snorkeling, but with scuba gear, so you don't actually have like a rebreather? Yeah. So it's just natural breath? Yeah, I've heard of that. I had a, I went on a thing with a group once where we were all skin diving, and you could skin dive into this underwater cave, and none of us knew if it came out anywhere. Why? How are you alive? You know what I didn't do? That. Yeah. Fuck that. No. I'll go in a cave. Sure. Because you can breathe in a cave. Yeah, no. Fuck fuck being underwater and in a cave. Uh, I've read stories about cave divers, or not even just cave divers, just, just a water hole. Yeah. And I think it's here in Austin. Okay. Where if you get to a certain depth, there is a sign with the Reaper on it oh. that says, Do not go further because you will die. Uh, I need to look that up. I, I want to I wanna say there was a cave in Austin. Uh, so is it just a cave, not a water cave? It's a water cave. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, it, 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 you have to dive a certain depth, and then it says, you know, the Reaper comes for those who oh. pass. <laughs> the Reaper comes for those who pass. And those who take enough time to read this sign. Here it is. What's it called? Uh, and, uh, this is just the... Uh, Jesus. This that is, is the just sign. a straight up picture of the Grim Reaper. Hold on, let me read this. This is... Oh, it, this is an, a Florida cave. Oh. Stop, prevent your death. Said sign at Florida. Prevent your death, go no farther. Fact, more than 300 divers, including open water scuba instructors, have died in caves just like this one. Fact... You needed training to dive. You need cave training and cave equipment to cave dive. Fact. Without cave training and cave equipment, divers can die here. Fact. It can happen to you. There's nothing in this cave worth dying for. Do not go beyond this point. That's insane. That is the most warning a sign has ever given. This is Eagle's Nest Sinkhole. Oh, boy. Yeah. In Florida. So I was off about the Austin thing. But still. But still, you're, just imagine you're diving mm-hmm. and, and scuba diving. You're going through this cave and you're like, oh, I'm having a good time going deeper and deeper. And then you come across this fucking sign. It's like, you could die. I would be like, where's the where's the, the rope yeah, to, ring, to pull ring, me out? Ring the bell. I'm buried alive down here. Exactly. Uh, then just get, yeah. No, I don't like being underwater. Me either. Don't like it at all. We've talked about my fears. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like dying. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people die in the water in Austin. What? You know, just swimmers. Just people swimming? Dying? Just people jumping off of that bridge over, uh... The Pennybacker? Sure. Wait, what bridge? No, they, they just, there's like a bridge over like part of something that runs to Lady Bird Lake is it Barton Springs? Creek? Maybe. They jump I think it's Barton Creek. They jump off of the bridge and then they hit a rock. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, it's not deep water. 
Humans are just... We're we're these fragile little skin bags. We have death drives. If we find a hidden passage that's only the size of a fist, we'd hit it with cold chisels and sledgehammers until we let all the ghosts out. I feel like after the first few months of of Ted the Caver just chipping away and not making a lot of progress, getting into that little passageway, I would just be like, eh, I need to give up. (laughs) I have better things to do. Humans don't need to be here. You know, if Ted the Caver had done that, and then once he got through the passage, he saw a sign that said, Stop, (laughs) nothing in this cave is worth dying for. He probably would have turned back. If it's written in hieroglyphics. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people who see that sign and go, Nothing in this cave is worth dying for. Bet you're wrong. (laughs) They're trying to hide (laughs) the treasure from me. (laughs) Let me go get that the Grim Reaper's treasure. The Grim Reaper has put his gold here. (laughs) Classic Grim Reaper trick. Uh, So, from the origins of Ted the Caver's the original creepypasta to our favorite creepypastas. Yes. That we've read before, that you can just recall from the top of your head without any preparation. Uh, can I tell you a favorite creepypasta, but it's just kind of like a larger thing? Sure. Uh, Is it SCP? No, it's actually uh, Marble Hornets. Oh, Marble Hornets. Yeah, the video series uh, that is largely based on Slenderman... The Rake, I think, is the other one, which is another classic kind of creepypasta cryptid. And then one other one, I think. But it's just kind of this uh, eerie, eerie, creepy, amateur short film series that uh, gets creepier and creepier and then gets worse and worse and kind of becomes like an interpersonal drama that doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's quite a few hours of uh, enjoyment. Now, it's a video series. Yes, on YouTube. How does that heighten... The horror. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Okay. Uh, Typically, I mean, at least early on, they're pretty good. They're very ambitious amateur filmmakers. Yeah. So they they do a good job of, like, heightening the horror where they can. It's been a while since I've watched this stuff, though. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of, like, Slenderman stuff, but... Slenderman's kind of, like... I don't know. It took on a life of its own. It, It really did. It took on a life of its own. A child, I believe, died. Because of Slender Man. A Slender Man... There was a stabbing incident, yes. Slender Man as a thing, I think, has reached a, a certain level of ridiculous uh, m- mimetic autonomy that I really don't enjoy. But I thought that a lot of the stuff surrounding Slender Man and, like, Marble Hornets and stuff was kind of cool at the time. I mean, it, it's interesting just to witness the phenomenon that is sort of like a creepypasta because i think it originated as a creepypasta yeah it originated as like a picture yeah of just a picture kind of taking on this 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 life force and becoming kind of like an entry in modern day horror really i think that slender man is it's kind of genius because i'm i think someone has a copyright on slender man at this point maybe could be uh but i think that slender man is uh it's kind of fascinating because Slender Man is what would happen without uh, inter- 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 intellectual property law because you just have a thing that is allowed to grow organically in the minds and works of many creators. So it's like if Sherlock Holmes wasn't uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's and everyone could write a Sherlock Holmes story. I mean, we're kind of at that point, aren't we? Yeah, we are. People have iterated on Sherlock Holmes to the point where Watson is a girl sometimes, and sometimes Benedict Cumberbatch is in it, and sometimes it's Rodney Dangerfield. But just imagine, if you will, that there was... uh, 
let's let's take one of the greatest characters in like the modern like hero mythos like jim carrey's character from liar liar all right and if we could just iterate on if that. you could just iterate any scenario where he couldn't tell a lie just imagine in the minds of various creators what that would do you would even sometimes give him tentacles yeah tentacles that couldn't tell lies either Remember in Liar Liar how he would talk to his son and go, The Claw, but now he'd go, The Tentacle. Yeah, he would, yeah. would just have tentacles waggling yeah. around. Why does sometimes Slender Man have tentacles? I don't know. I guess they thought it'd be cool. He doesn't have a mouth, right? I don't know. I don't think he does. How does he eat? Uh, tentacles. <laughs> Through the tentacles? Yeah, probably. Oh, man. Yeah. Gross. SCP. SCP. What is that? Do you not know of SCP? SCP... I've, I've played a couple Half-Life 2 mods about it. Oh, that... Yeah. SCP... Which became a game. And I know that it's supposedly, like... Supposedly, it's... Uh, it is, like, a large collection of kind of in-universe mythological monstrosities. SCP is, is fascinating. It is a community-based horror universe that's very good and it, it's 100 percent just i guess crowd not sourced mm-hmm. but not like funding just content okay and it, it all revolves around the scp foundation mm-hmm. and uh they have a they have an about page on the scp foundation wikia mm-hmm. and uh here's how it goes mankind in its present state has been around for a quarter of a million years Yet only the last 4,000 have been of any significance. So, what did we do for nearly 2,500,000 years? We huddled in caves and around small fires, fearful of the things that we didn't understand. It was more than explaining why the sun came up. It was the mystery of enormous birds with heads of men and rocks that came to life. So we called them gods and demons, begged them to spare us, and prayed for salvation. In time, their numbers dwindled and ours rose. The world began to make more sense when there were fewer things to fear, yet the unexplained can never truly go away, as if the universe demands the absurd and impossible. Mankind must not go back to hiding in fear. No one else will protect us, and we must stand up for ourselves. While the rest of mankind dwells in the light, we must stand in the darkness to fight it, contain it, and shield it from the eyes of the public so that others may live in a sane and normal world. We secure, we contain, we protect. Oh. Sign the administrator. So this is... Forgive me for being reductive. It's a real BPRD. Bureau of Paranormal Research and Development. It's. I think it's a thing from Hellboy, right? Maybe. I've only seen two of the Hellboy movies because only two of the Hellboy movies were made. You're right. There's a third one coming. Uh, but it's... Uh, it's So this is a... I just want to be clear. The idea of a totally community-driven horror mythos? Yes. Fascinating. And, and Not it's... since weird fiction with like H.P. Lovecraft and all of his co-conspirators and collaborators and cr- scrawny racists... Uh, has there been such great horror output? And the the fun thing is, or I, I don't know if it's fun, but sure, the fun thing is it's written from the guise of cont- like 
of sort of the containers, the protectors, the researchers mm -hmm. observing the paranormal. Mm -hmm. So it, it, these are specimens, and they all they have a range of numbers, and each specimen has like a number, SCP, with the number. And how you find stories is by searching SCP and the number to find stories about that specimen or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's what SCP is. Can we just try to find one? Oh, sure. Let's go to the beginning. Series 1. The original. Okay, so can I give you a number? Sure, what do you want? SCP-666. Uh, let's find it. We're scrolling. SCP-666. Is there one? The title is Spirit Lodge. Oh, it's quite a bit of information, isn't it? This is basically a compendium. Mm -hmm. And SCP-666 is object class Elucid. Did I say that right? Elucid? Yeah. Elucid. Or Euclid. No, Euclid, like the geometry. Euclid. Euclid. Uh, special containment procedures. SCP-666 is to be stored in a monitored closed vault at all times at Site-73 in the Tibetan Mountains. Guards are to be changed weekly, must pass a background check before being assigned to their post, and proven free of drug and alcohol addiction. SCP-666 is to be entered only by D-class personnel and approved testing procedures or by approved Foundation researchers with level 4 or higher security clearance. So you got a lot of bureaucratic stuff yeah. that adds to the world. I really like to imagine these words actually mean something in this world. I, I'm sure they do. That would be great. Now here's a description, which is probably more interesting than the containment procedures. Mm -hmm. SCP-666 is a medium-sized Tibetan yurt made of tied wood branches and covered in yak leather. The interior ceiling is 2.44 meters high. I can't read numbers. And the base of the yurt is 9.14 meters wide. The hut is circular in shape. The interior of the yurt has a dirt floor and appears to be as crude as the outside to the majority of observers. The branches that make up the yurt frame are wrapped in rabbit fur and tied with yak leather tongs. Periodically, SCP-666 will change its location within the confinement area. This will happen only when not under direct observation, but re remote viewing gives the impression of an entity inside the structure, lifting it wholly and moving it to its new position. To date, it has not made any attempt to escape confinement. SCP-666 was discovered in 1973 by SCP operatives searching the mound regions on reports of several missing persons having returned from the area giving similar explanations. Seeking shelter during harsh, harsh weather, the individuals would, ha individuals would happen upon SCP-666 by seeming happenstance. Having gone out in similar conditions, the exploration team was also able to discover the yurt. Of the three oper operatives present, two experienced no ill effects. The third entered a stupor, experiencing vivid hallucinations and muttering incoherently to himself. Upon retrieval of the team, the yurt was recovered and taken to nearby Site-73 for further investigation. And it keeps going. Mm -hmm. So we got a sweet... SCP-666 is just like a moving spirit, spirit yurt. I... The fact that we went to a relatively random one of these... And it seemed like you scrolled through so many. Oh, yeah. 
I, I like that this one is really unique. Yeah. It's a moving yurt. And I, it seems like, at the very least, the quality of the writing is pretty passable. And this is, like, the thing about SCP is that it ranges from entries into this compendium, which is like a, a whole collection of different oddities and ends, to people write out dramatizations. Mm-hmm. Or they, they'll do, like, observation logs. Maybe from the perspective of an agent observing this particular SCP unit. Mm-hmm. I really love that. It's pretty, pretty amazing. I can't believe I didn't know that this thing existed. And it's been around for quite a while. I don't even know how far back it goes. But the SCP Foundation, it, it ranks pretty high on a bunch of different lists of famous creepypastas. Yeah, I can't imagine how this one wouldn't list, wouldn't rank highly. Because this is an impressive effort and a, a very cool way to tell a story. A pretty revolutionary way to tell a story online. And it's really taking what creepypastas are about, which is sharing these big creepy things, but it's putting them in a universal container. One thing that creepypastas are really great at is world building. Mm -hmm. Because they have to construct a world in which the paranormal can happen. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to our own, but there are the details, like the caving explanations in uh, Ted the Caver, Mm -hmm. or the very bureaucratic language of the SCP Foundation that that just lends the credibility so that then you're able to swallow the supernatural easier. Yeah. And that's the good thing about horror. Mm-hmm. Things like The Witch, where it just throws you into a world. Uh, the movie The Witch. Yeah. It throws you into a world, a world that we're sort of familiar with, but through a lens that we, we're not, like, an authentic lens mm-hmm. of the language, the dress, everything is of period. Mm-hmm. And then it slowly builds the tension, introducing the black goat, whispers, images of, of like, the boy seeing the, the naked witch kind of, yeah. like, tempting him. All of this builds to this believability that by the end, when we see, spoiler alert, but when you see the end of the movie, yeah. you 100% are bought into it. Yeah, the the best horror is horror that makes you believe it could conceivably take place in the world you're watching it in. Not necessarily that it could take place in your world or whatever. The, the only thing you need to believe is that what you're watching is something that makes sense for the world it's building. So if it builds the world around that, and all those terrible things end up being true, it becomes fun and interesting and frightening to watch. The greatest thing about horror, or horror, the whole genre of horror, is that it, it fools the mind into being scared for no reason. Yeah. And to pull that off is a magic trick. Yes. Horror is easy to be done poorly. Yeah. To be done well, horror is one of... Horror is like comedy. Horror is like comedy because it's something that, for very specific reasons, tricks you into believing what it's... Into you believing what it's selling you. Yeah. And that's really hard to do. And it triggers a physical reaction in the body. Mm -hmm. With comedy, you laugh, which is an involuntary action... Yeah. With horror, you know, all of this, all of, your body gets scared, your brain gets freaked out, your heart starts racing, you, you start thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Hours later, when you're in the dark, after I've experienced the horror film, you remember it and you get scared again and then things around you start getting amplified. 
I feel as though, and this is something that's kind of been a through line throughout our conversations during these frightened times, and I, fi- I think that it's true, and we've touched on it a couple times, but I think that from talking about uh, like the, the, the mechanisms and the rituals of things like Bloody Mary and the, what was it, the Three Kings? Yeah, the Ritual of the Three Kings. The Ritual of the Three Kings. Uh, and also the urban legends we talk about and the effects those have on people. Being able to tell a scary story well is a magic trick. Some people are, are phenomenally good at it, but there are some things that are just objectively true about telling those stories. And everything about it is just tapped directly into the human psyche. And being able to tell these stories well is having tremendous power over people. Which is why we want to do Bloody Mary. It's why we try to tell people to do the Three Kings ritual or at least read about it. It's why we tell urban legends to each other. It's why we create things like this. Because being able to scare people is having an elemental control almost over the universe because you change people's perceptions meaningfully by being creative and that's why fox news does it every morning they want to control the universe uh sinclair media is way worse okay isn't that the name of it sinclair media they own like most of the you're right the people who put out the stories that the entire nation (laughs) reads but I think with that uh, jab at Fox News, that's that, that's the that's the indicator. That's how this ends, not yeah. with a bang, but with a jab at Fox News. I uh, I think that's the first sign that that daylight has broken through, that the frightened times are finally over. Normalcy's returned, yeah. or is returning, or is it that? Don't know why I'm speaking this way. Is it that the Frightened Times just sort of dims its light a little bit? It's always there, lurking in the shadows, ready to to pull you in with its creepy, like, unwashed fingernail claws Mm -hmm. to drag you into a room full of stuffed animals without eyes, Mm -hmm. all wielding makeshift shivs, Mm -hmm. ready to stab you with that fear knife. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you mean, Henry, that the reason why we never remember the Frightened Times ending is because because the the Frightened Times times never end! Follow your mother from the green room to the long hallway back into the phantom piano lounge. Without her skin, your mother passes through the tables and crowds of ease despite being the one everyone wants to see. No one's seen her without her skin for quite some time, you think. But she moves with such ease, it's as though she's been born again. You follow her to the table of the old, dead mayor. You see her whisper something in his decaying ear, and his skin begins to sag and sag. 
It melts off his body in chunks and reveals an old, rotund skeleton man underneath. His eyes are dull, cold, the embers of his pupils barely hanging on. The skeleton mayor looks at your mom, the fire in his eyes focusing. You can't hear what they're saying, but your mom points at you and the skeletal mayor nods. You wave back. It seems polite. He picks himself out of his chair and heads toward the door without looking back. He's going to join us topside, your mom says with a wink. What did you say to him? you ask. Not much, only that his replacement was a no-good anti-skelite who forced us and our kind into hiding while wiping our memories of our identity. Your mom then makes her way to the table of howling and snapping wolves, and you shout out to warn her that they'd once attacked you, but the words stop in your throat. She already knew they had tried to attack you. She referred to it back in the green room not minutes ago. The wolves quieted their growling to listen to your mom's speech with intense, unblinking yellow and silver eyes. She pointed you out to them and they nodded. Again, you waved. The pack stands up out of their collective chairs and walk toward the front door, joining the old mayor. How on earth did you even get them on our side, you ask? Oh, the Bone Wolves have always been on our side, your mom says, and as she does, you can see the wolves shedding their skin, revealing the skeletal pack as they truly are. But they attacked me, you say. They were confused. They could smell the scent of your bones, but found a creature clad in skin, and could not reconcile the two. They lashed out at you in fear of what seemed unnatural to them. Your mom eyes the wolves with a kind of somber sadness. They've been through a lot these past few years, but then again, so have you. Your mom embraces you. I know this is confusing and a little, well, bone-shaking, but I need your support as well. We can't do this without you, Clara. You think for a moment and realize a lot has happened in the past few minutes, and it all kind of hits you at once. The blob of faces that you remembered as your mother was not your mother. This skeleton pianist is. Your grumbling dictator of a father was the true disciplinarian of your family, despite the many lectures you remember your postman blob mom screaming at you. And he, your father, was a straight skeleton racist. And you yourself are a skeleton. You're a skeleton. I'm in, you say, thinking of the hatred in your father's eyes as he cracked the belt at his own daughter. Then you might want to dress the part. Your mom tugs at your skin. You reach behind your head, through your hair, searching for... What, exactly? If there'd been a zipper, surely you would have found it in the years after the memory wipe. But sure as bones are dry, your hand connects with a zipper in the dead center of the back of your head. You pull it slowly, 
wondering if it will hurt. Your mother's bones lighten as your skin suit slowly crumples to the floor. You step out of it, kicking it as it gets stuck on your foot as you try to rid yourself of the lie you'd been wearing for years. It always gets stuck on your foot, your mom says, choking back what could pass for tears. Let's join the rest. You follow your mother to the front door of the Phantom Piano Lounge, nodding at both the mayor and the Bone Wolves. Harold, your mother calls out, if you would be so kind as to open the door. The small man with the long arms appears as if from nowhere at your side. He's looking up at you down the length of his long arms. We can just go, you ask? Of course, the small man with the long arms says. Not many do, but it seems the piano lounge will be without a pianist for a spell. I imagine many will make their way to this door. His long arms stretch toward the door. He opens it without moving from your side. We don't expect much here, he says. Least of all that someone would wish to stay here forever. Your group makes its way to the door. The mayor and the bone wolves ascend quickly up the stairs, followed closely by your mother. You get to the door and look back. This place, what it's done for you. You realize this place gave you your mother back, your identity. You turn back to Harold and call out, Thanks for opening the door for me. It is literally my only job, Harold says. Now quick, you're letting all the life in. He shoos you away, and you step quick and light up the stairs back into the moonlit forest. Your group makes its way to the mayoral mansion where your father lives. They walk up the steps to the front door, the wolves flanking you, your mother, and the previous mayor on both sides. At the landing, your mother signals you to stay back and approaches the door. She knocks three times and waits. A moment passes and the door slowly opens to reveal your father, skinned as ever, in his red brass-buttoned mayor jacket. Your mother speaks before he can. I think it's time you step down, dear. We have located Jim and brought him back to reclaim his position. Back from the dead, your father says. You're all skeletons, and skeletons are illegal. That's enough of that, the old mayor says. You know as well as I, skeletons have every right to live in this town, same as you. Same as anyone. I do not recognize the legitimacy of your presence, your father says. The old mayor was declared dead by the elders and eldresses who govern our town. Oh, stuff it, Rob, your mom says. Stuff it in that stupid, fleshy mouth of yours and swallow, swallow those words with those throat muscles you're so proud of. We are here. We exist. You took our daughter's mind and fucked with it. Where the fuck do you get off? It ain't right, your father says, that you lot are walking around all bones with no muscle. It just don't make sense. You clear your throat. Be 
that as it may, you say, we do. It may not make sense from a human standpoint, and it's not like we can explain it, but we do. We're here. We can't help but be here. Not that we'd want to. Life is interesting. It's meant to be shared by everyone, with everyone, even skeletons. You pet the head of a bone wolf. Even these guys. And if you can't see that, then well... Then well, maybe you shouldn't be a part of it. What are you saying, your father says? Are you threatening me? If that's how you see it, you say, then yes, I am. Get em, boys. The bone wolves spring to life, and the gnashing and snapping you heard in the phantom piano lounge sings through the air once more, joined by the growls and howls of the fierce pack. Your father scrambles to shut the door, but the wolves are too fast. They're on him before he can even scream. Your mother puts her arm around your shoulders and pulls you back toward the steps. You did well, she says. I don't think I could have done that myself. Even after all he did, you ask? The decade of separation and exile? Your mom smiles a sad smile and her bones grow heavy. He wasn't always that way. Not in the beginning. She trails off in a thought or memory you can't tell. And in any case, she says, he gave me you. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. You walk shoulder and arm with your mom down the long steps of the mayoral mansion into a night of freedom and certainty. A cold wind blows in from the woods, and faintly, ever so faintly, you hear the soft sound of a piano drifting and swaying through the trees. We did our little gags. We did our gags. But now it's time, of course. Let's get down to business, John. Yes, we need to handle for the last, the first of infinite, infinity times for the frightened times. Handle our social media. Once and for all, let's nip this social media in the bud for this episode. Let's pin it to the shadow box where we all one day will go. 
And if you want to send us the pictures of uh, your horrifying corpse menagerie that you keep in your shadow box, you can send that to us on Twitter. Henry does not want you to send us that, but I know that you will. Send it to us at ZCPCWHJ on Twitter.com, which stands for The Essential Authority will take over everything. Sorry for interrupting you, John. That's fine. And of course, if you want to send anything to uh, our email, if you want to send us anything regarding uh, what you're doing to stand up to the central authority or in any way uh, foment rebellion, you can send that to zero credits as a podcast at gmail.com. We are, of course, on Facebook. You can search for Facebook. God damn it. I do that every <laughs> you week. You could search for Facebook. <laughs> Here's what you do. Why would you? Here's what you do. You're already on Facebook. You go to Alta Vista the and you search. The searches are coming from inside the house. <laughs> you go to Alta Vista and you search for Facebook. And then you go to the first link. You register your Facebook account because you don't have one. And then, uh, friend everyone. And then, don't friend everyone. And then you search for Zero Credits Podcast on the Facebook search bar where there some where engage 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 we are on spotify if you search for zero credit open parentheses s close parentheses stylizing the title was a mistake also it has to be in the podcast section of yes, spotify it has to be in which the po- you have to go through like three buttons to get to it has very to, convenient it has to be in the podcast section however you do not have to look in the podcast section of apple Podcasts, where we have a presence <laughs> yes Wait, but i mean it's called apple Podcasts, but it's it's a separate thing. Isn't the now. whole section? Yeah. The it is kind of the podcast. Section. It's like calling the bo- a bookstore the book department. So if you want to like, comment, and subscribe, whatever you do on Apple Podcasts, the most important thing is that you leave us a review. Those reviews are the best way to get word out about the podcast. And as always, word of the mouth is the only way we can survive. So please tell your friends. You don't understand how much it means to us. To your friends, to the the writhing mass that you think is the grass. Anything on earth benefits from you telling your friends. Oh, wow. We've nipped it in the bud. We never have to do the social media plugs again. We really buried them deep in the ground. For this episode. And from everyone here at the Frightened Times headquarters in downtown L.A., We want to wish you a happy The Central Authority was proud to present this broadcast. All hail Central Authority. The Central Authority says goodbye. The Central Authority tips its hat. So long. And thanks for all the fright, Pilgrim.
I mostly just shoot horses. <laughs> <laughs>